Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I won't just turn the car around. I'm going to shut it off. I'm going to kick you out and I'm going to make you walk home. This Bendrovsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Bendrovsky Show as I speak. It's Friday, November 6, 2020. Lord knows when you're listening to this because uh, it's a podcast. The headline in the Chicago Tribune, today's tri- Chicago Tribune, sorry, lets you know exactly where we are uh, this uh, this day. Not there yet. Yeah. Wherever we are, we're not there. Uh, they're talking, of course, about the presidential election, and they're still tabulating votes in several states. Neither candidate has officially uh, made it across the 270 electoral college line for reasons I'll never understand. We have this bizarre situation in this country. We cling to it where instead of the popular vote winning, it's the electoral college vote that matters. Uh, just one other deficiency in our system. All right. Uh, I have somebody uh, on, a very uh, distinguished guest, to discuss these issues of the day. So as I always do, I'll ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Introduce yourself, distinguished guest. <laughs> well, uh, thank you for having me on, Ben. This is 35th Ward Alderman, uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosa, Chicago's very own. Yes, Chicago's very own. Very popular uh, guest on our show. Every okay. time Carlos comes on, a lot of people uh, tune in. So, Carlos, appreciate uh, you support. What's that? Lots of hate listeners, no doubt. Well, hate listeners, love listeners. Yeah, maybe a little of both. Uh, all right. Um, what got me uh, just immediately to reach out to you was a post that you put on your Facebook. Why? You know, Carlos, I'm a very, um, I'm not a diligent Facebook reader. It's almost like I forget that it's there. And then from time to time, I look at it. And for some reason, your post was right there high when I looked at it. I think it was this morning. And I'm going to read what you wrote. I think you wrote it yesterday. And I'm reading this, uh, and then we're going to take it from there. Lots of folks from different sides of the political spectrum are currently repeating their team's traditional takes. For progressives saying, quote, Bernie would have won, or all Trump voters are motivated by racism. I may have been guilty of saying that one time or another, Carlos. Uh, I may have been guilty of saying each of those comments. Uh, Anyway, might make us feel good or smart. But it's not helpful for co-creating knowledge that will inform future progressive electoral strategies. This election was a strange one. For some Americans, it was about decency versus lies. For some, it was about socialism versus capitalism. For some, it was about looting. For some, it was about coronavirus, Trump's handling, or lockdowns. And for others, it was about QAnon and child sex trafficking. It's too early to tell what motivated the electorate this cycle. Let's let the dust settle, wait for the ballots to be counted, and then dig into data and try to make sense of what happened. Until then, let's stop sharing the same tired takes. As for what is to be done at this moment, we don't need election results or polling data to tell us. We have a duty to defend democracy and continue to stand for our progressive values. So let's drink some water, 
take a nap, wait for the ballots to be counted, take to the streets, and continue to organize for the social and economic justice our communities deserve. And that's something Carlos wrote on his Facebook page. I read that. I immediately reached out. I had on the show uh, on Thursday, uh, Miles, yesterday, seems like a, f- a month ago, Miles Conflassen uh, from In These Times. I know he's a friend of yours. You know him. A uh, big Bernie Sanders supporter. And he was talking about it's a day of recognition uh, for the Democratic Party. It seems that what you're saying, it's a day of reflection. Your thoughts? Absolutely. I, I think we need to reflect as a country. Um, it's very clear that we are extremely polarized. Um, Americans are making decisions about who should lead our nation, um, existing almost in entirely different worlds. Um, and, you know, for what seems as a totally ludicrous choice for us, right? When I mean us, I mean progressives. I mean folks who see Donald Trump as a liar, you know, see him for the fraud that he is. For us, it makes no sense whatsoever to choose Trump, right? And, and I think that was the main kind of narrative that the Biden campaign about restoring the presidential office and what that means. For a lot of other voters, they did not make their choice through that narrative in that world. They were occupying a totally different world. And it is all over the place. For some folks, it's the total nut job conspiracy theory of QAnon. Right. If you believe the QAnon theory in that world, in that mindset, it makes sense that you would choose Donald Trump. Right. Um, If you are someone that lives in Florida uh, and you are a rabid anti-communist and you genuinely believe that Joe Biden and the Democratic Party and Kamala Harris represent socialism, uh, then for you, it's socialism versus capitalism. And in that sense, it makes sense for you to choose Donald Trump. Um, We still don't really know where voters in specific states Um, kind of what was motivating them. And so what I'm saying is, let's look at the data, let's let the dust settle, let's let all the votes be counted, uh, and let's absolutely fight for democracy and push for every single vote to be counted. Um, And then once the dust has settled and we can dig into the polling data, we can dig into the exit polls, we can dig into the actual voter data and try and make sense of what happened. But until then, it's still way too early to tell what really motivated people uh, and gave us the end result uh, that we have. Well, I could tell you, uh, Carlos, that there are many people I know uh, of the uh, leftist persuasion, Democrats, uh, who came away uh, how do I, depressed by uh, the election. I'm thinking off the top of my head, a guy, it's not, a, it's not somebody I know, but uh, there's a comedian, uh, Earthquake, uh, who, um, a black man, and he did a... Uh, I've been talking about this. Uh, he put out a message on his Instagram page, and usually he's, you know, he's a very funny, uh, profane guy. But this was like a, a solemn message where he said, uh, "White people, you have spoken, and now I know what you really uh, think of me." And Ramana Hussein, who came, comes on the show uh, once a week, from she's an editor at the Sun Times, uh, she expressed many of the same sentiments. So, how do you? Um, what kind of message do you give to folks who like them, who are a little down, uh, that, that just can't believe that for whatever reason, whatever reason motivated them, so many Americans opted to go with Donald Trump again? You know, I'm, I'm disappointed by the result. I wanted to see a resounding uh, rejection of Trump and Trumpism. Um, and to see it come down to a nail biter, obviously, if we were a normal country and went by the popular vote, 
this would have been decided days ago. It is so clear uh, that a majority of Americans um, reject Trump and Trumpism uh, and voted against Donald Trump this election. Um, but um, we're not a normal country and we have an electoral college and that electoral college result is hinging on counting ballots uh, in just a handful of states. Um, and even even if we went by the popular vote, you know, to, to squeak by uh, with 74 to 71 million votes, which is where it looks, it stands right now, um, it, it's still just too close for comfort, right? I, I think for a lot of us that um, have seen the harm caused by Donald Trump, we wanted to see, you know, a 60-40 result, a 70-30 result. Um, you know, I, I, I feel that disappointment, and I absolutely agree with the sentiment or the statement that, you know, this country was founded on white supremacy. There's no doubt about that, right? It was written into the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it's been written into code and policy and law uh, since the beginning of this country. Um, but at the same time, if we as a progressive movement want to be successful uh, in the future and want to really understand what is happening in this country, then we can't be quick to jump to conclusions. And even if we accept that, you know, what motivated rural white first-time voters to come out in droves to vote for Donald Trump is white supremacy, just that statement in and of itself doesn't really provide me with much useful information that I can use to build a legislative majority in state houses and in Washington, D.C. And so we're only going to be able to really figure that out if we as a progressive movement really dig into the data, really have meaningful conversations with those that don't see eye to eye with us um, and, and figure out a way in which we can make common cause. Because you know what got more votes than Donald Trump and Joe Biden in the state of Florida? It was a $15 living wage. Yeah. So we know that there are people out there that want to see dignified wages for white people, for black people, for Latinos in the state of Florida that came and voted for Donald Trump. Right. And so we need to understand what was in the mind of that voter who chose a progressive option, a $15 living wage, but at the same time chose someone who we as progressives understand to be antithetical to all of that. We also have to understand that Donald Trump made inroads with uh, black and Latino voters. It seems as if, uh, you know, some of those inroads may have been overstated um, on election night, but nonetheless, uh, it does seem and appear that that happened. And we know that it, or it appears at this moment that Donald Trump overwhelmingly won first time voters. It seems as if, you know, white rural voters came out big time. But we still need to wait for all the votes to be counted. Um, while it appears that this is what's been happening uh, thus far, um, we, we really need the dust to settle. And then we can really look at the data and try and make sense. And only by having that truly meaningful conversation and not immediately jumping to, you know, those tropes or ideas that make us feel good and make us feel right. I think only then are we really going to be able to, to have a winning strategy moving forward as a progressive movement. Uh, I you mentioned the fifteen dollar uh, minimum wage ballot initiative in Florida. What other signs uh, that you see on uh, Tuesday in the election that lead you to believe that we, progressives can build a progressive agenda, legislative agenda, as you were pointing out, uh, that links uh, urban voters to rural voters, uh, Biden voters to Trump voters? What other positive signs did you see? Uh, well, there was the Fox News exit poll. I don't know if, if the folks that are listening saw that. 
if they haven't, they should go take a look at those uh, results that were reported out on election night. The exit polling that Fox News did that they were reporting on before the results started to pull in, to me, had me convinced that we were going to see the Biden landslide that many of us were expecting. Um, I mean, you had over two thirds of voters saying that what we should do with undocumented immigrants and, of course, the poll called them illegal immigrants. Um, but the, even framing the question in the most negative way towards undocumented immigrants, over two thirds of Americans that went and voted said they should be given a pathway to citizenship as opposed to being deported. Um, over two thirds of Americans said that they wanted government controlled health care. Um, so even when Fox News put it forward uh, in what they viewed as the most negative light, people said, yeah, we want something like Medicare for all. We want a government controlled health care option. Um, in different states in the state of Oregon, we saw the complete decriminalization of drugs, right, which so many conservatives, obviously traditional conservatives, would be totally opposed to. So I, I think when you look at the exit polling data on the issues, when you look at issues that went up on a referendum, uh, they were very clearly uh, progressive things. Um, they, they succeeded. And so for me, that shows that there's a disconnect. Right. There's a disconnect between people that went out and voted for Donald Trump and the Republican Party and everything that they represent and the actual types of policies that they actually want to see. But at the same time, we also have to understand that the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party did not necessarily represent um, those uh, progressive policies uh, that, you know, people uh, want to see and supported uh, either verbally as, you know, in an exit poll or with their actual vote. Uh, you know, House Democrats rejected a marijuana decriminalization bill, uh, you know, recently. Um, and yet we saw that across the United States, marijuana decriminalization and legalization was a big winner. Um, so, again, but, but that doesn't mean that we should necessarily immediately go to, well, you see, if we run on this progressive platform of all these issues, we'll immediately win. I don't think it's that simple. Um, we really have to understand what's happening um, I think that there's a lot happening in terms of identity, uh, the way that white rural voters see themselves, see themselves in the world, see them, their standing in the United States. I do think that that is linked to white supremacy and racism. But again, until we really are able to look into the data, we're not going to be able to really make sense of what happened and what the path forward should be. Uh, along those lines, I think I told you I was going to share this with you. I have to find it. Get your response to this. Uh, Claire McCaskill, former senator from Missouri, now a, a pundit, um, put this out. And I'm just literally reading you the quote that she, uh, uh, the, the, the tweet that she put out and then get your response. Okay. Uh, I don't actually don't know if it's a tweet or it's a quote from something she said on the TV, but here we go. Quote, whether you are talking guns or abortion or gay marriage and rights for transsexuals and transsexuals oh, is in quotes and other people who we as a party look after and make sure they are treated fairly. As we circled the issues, we left voters behind and Republicans dove in your thoughts. Claire. I just I don't even know what to do with that or what to say to that. I mean, the use of, of outdated terminology just shows that, you know, she doesn't even really understand uh, these issues. And to explicitly name um, trans people, to say that because we talked about trans rights, we left the voters behind. I mean, that's just totally gross. Um, one. I think it's insulting to trans people in the LGBT community who have not really necessarily seen uh, a Democratic Party that truly uplifts uh, trans rights. It's not as if, you know, the signature issue that Joe Biden ran on was trans rights. 
Um, so, so this notion that, that somehow it's, it's trans people and talking about their rights that is to blame um, for democratic losses. Um, it's, it's, I'm sorry, it's, it's a bunch of bullshit. I don't know if I could say that on the radio, but it's absolutely, bullshit. it's a podcast. <laughs> it's a podcast, <laughs> not even on the radio. Yeah. Um, so, no, I. Um, it's total bullshit, and I'm, I'm honestly extremely disgusted. And I, I hope that um, people no longer give Claire McCaskill a platform. Obviously, if she so understood what rural, you know. Uh, Midwestern voters or Mid-South voters wanted, she would still be in office. Uh, she ran uh, as the type of Democrat uh, that you know clings to the quote-unquote center, that moves to the right consistently when pressed, and voters rejected that. So I think there's a lot to say there. But also, again, you know, we don't really understand where vote, how, and where voters are making the decisions that they made. There was a narrative of this campaign that Biden represented you know, the pillar of the D.C. establishment and that Trump was the outsider who was plain spoken, who was truth speaking and was there to clean up the swamp. And you needed to give him four more years to clean up the swamp. He himself said that, you know, in some of his final pitches to voters. So if you're a voter that is looking at the election through that frame, that has nothing to do with progressive policy. That has nothing to do with trans people and whether or not you believe they should have rights. It has to do with whether or not you want to have someone who you perceive as corrupt or someone who you perceive as an outsider that's cleaning up the corruption. So again, that's why I'm saying, Claire, one, don't jump to that conclusion because you don't have the data and you don't have the research to back that up. I think that just more so is, is indicative of Claire's worldview, where she's coming from and her own prejudices. Well, I have to tell you this, uh, Carlos, um, listening to what you've been saying and thinking about uh, what Claire McCaskill said, I'm just going to speak what my frustration is of when I, as a long, 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 long time Democrat uh, who has always voted Democrat because really there was no really alternative for me. And it's every presidential candidate that I can recall when confronted by the worst stereotypes or that Republicans can throw at them, like weak on crime or, you know, communist leaning, or, uh, always retreats. They never stand up. I can't think of one that literally just stood up. I mean, even the beloved Barack Obama made it clear through Joe Biden in 2008 that his his administration would not support gay marriage. It was only after he was successfully reelected that he suddenly had that evolution. Isn't that interesting? When he wasn't going to run for office anymore, he had an evolution. And I'm just looking for one Democrat who would look at a Republican and say, you know what? You're wrong in this thing. This is a matter of what? You could make a liberty out. Individual choice, freedom, liberty. And so I'm not bending on this issue just for this moment. And and I, I'm, I'm thinking, Carlos, get your reaction to this. During the debate, when Donald Trump uh, at, was debating, if you can call that a debate, uh, Biden, and when Pence debated Harris, as soon as they got to health care, oh, it's socialism, you know, socialism medicine. And they didn't, they backed down, Carlos. You know, that I found that, fr- they didn't, st- your thoughts on all this. Well, I think what you're getting to is that, you know, the Democrats ran very much to the center of this election, right? Um, and and that they, they didn't, you know, lean in, so to speak, uh, into Medicare for all, right? That Biden rejected that repeatedly, repeatedly. 
when he was on the campaign trail. And yet more people that that vote right more more people that voted supported having government controlled health care by right? having a, a plan of, of some sort that, that resembles Medicare for all than supported Joe Biden. Right. That is a popular position in this country. Um, so so it's, it's, it's just total, you know, bullshit uh, what Claire McCaskill is claiming. And it's not just Claire McCaskill. And again, that's why I said, you know, in my, if you go back to my original Facebook post, as I said, you know, people are repeating their team, their team's traditional takes. So Claire McCaskill as this neoliberal corporate Democrat, her traditional take is we must run to the center, right? We must moderate. We must be just like the Republicans to beat the Republicans. That's her traditional take. And so she's repeating that now, right? Um, similarly, you know, a lot of progressives, well, Bernie would have won. I'm not so sure that that's the case. Um, but I'm also not so sure that Claire McCaskill's right. But in terms of Claire McCaskill and her take, what I also find so offensive is that you got to also look at it from the other side, which is that. Biden would not have won if it weren't for all the young, woke, progressive people that turned out in record numbers. So because they turned out in record numbers in cities and they're immigrants, they're the brothers and sisters and siblings of undocumented immigrants. They're the brothers and sisters and siblings of trans people. They are trans people. Because they went out and worked so hard to get Trump out of office, and this is extremely well documented, that's why we have the Biden victory that we have now. And yes, we had rural white people that turned out for the first time in record numbers, right? And that's why it was so close. Uh, and, and that's why, you know, why we, we have the, the nail biter that we're in right now. But I don't think that those rural white people turned out in record numbers because Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says that we should have trans rights. I'm sorry, I just totally reject that. That I think is nonsense. And I think that when the data comes out and when we look at the exit polling and when we look at uh, the final vote, vote results and tally, that will play out. All right. Uh, you mentioned AOC. We'll get to AOC uh, in a little while. But I, I, I cannot uh, let this moment uh, pass uh, without good-naturedly pointing out that uh, the traditional takes uh, that you're advocating we not champion are ones I've heard from you uh, on the stage at the hideout. Uh, so let's just say, but what I'm saying is in this moment where we yeah. don't have good data, we don't even know if Biden has technically won. Yeah. Not all the votes have been counted. Let's put a pause for a second and let's okay. look at, the but you're absolutely right. I've been guilty of that in the past. And to the extent that I was, you know, spouting off, you know, traditional progressive talking points without real data to back it up. That was wrong with me. Well, before you're too hard on yourself, uh, which <laughs> before, uh, you know, so. I, I appreciate the fact that you did come to the hideout in 2016 to make the point, which I think was an important point to be made in 2016, uh, that a candidate like Bernie Sanders, who was pushing the envelope, you know, go exceeding where we normally would go in terms of conventional wisdom of what's electable on issues like uh, healthcare, for instance, and taxing the rich, was actually not out of the mainstream and would actually, that is a message that could reach people. So before you whip yourself too much, Carlos, on that point, I think it was a legitimate point uh, that you were making back in 2016. Uh, oh, but yeah. And I, and I would stand by that. I, I do think that Hillary was the wrong candidate in 2016. She was deeply unpopular. Um, I think that they're similar to the vote that we had now. Um, there was a lot of anti-establishment sentiment uh, and people were looking for an outsider. Um, 
I, I still think that, that Bernie would have won in 2016. However, since then, the electoral map has changed. The electorate has changed. It appears, and again, I, I have to preface that with it appears because we still have to wait for all the votes to come in and for all the polling and exit polling to be looked at and, and analyzed and weighted. It appears that Trump has identified a new base, that he held his existing base and added to it, and it appears that it was, you know, white rural voters. Um, there was a lot of, you know, polling and uh, uh, election result data that pointed to Bernie having more appeal with those white rural voters than Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Uh, and uh, all right, let's put 2016 aside and talk about the future. You mentioned uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez uh, and um, AOC. She has become, she has become just sort of like a, uh, a symbol uh, that the um, Republican Party has created. They just evoke those three initials, AOC, and automatically it like triggers a response uh, in uh, their supporters. And I'd like to know, get your thoughts on how, what AOC or politicians, politicians like her, progressive politicians from cities who um, are definitely left of center can do to sort of introduce themselves to those rural voters who came out for Donald Trump, uh, who for to introduce that themselves to people who don't live in New York City or Logan Square or uh, Rogers Park or San Francisco or wherever you know the point. Yeah. Introduce themselves on a, in a way on turf where they're who they are as opposed to a caricature created by Donald Trump. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I, I think one, you're absolutely right. You know. Um, Republicans have kind of, you know, logged on to AOC and, and use her as this, you know, boogeyman. And, and a lot of it, I think, has to do with the rural-urban divide, right? She is the urban other. A lot of it has to do with misogyny and the fact that she's a woman. A lot of it has to do with racism and the fact that she's a woman of color, right? And so they're able to other her. But I also think that if AOC didn't exist, they'd find another boogeyman. Right? It doesn't matter. That, that's what Republicans are very good at doing. Uh, their base seems to be very good at following kind of the cues that comes from the right-wing media in terms of who to despise. Um, you know, they did the same thing to Hillary. Uh, they do the same thing to Nancy Pelosi. Uh, if Pete Buttigieg was, you know, the darling congressman from New York, they'd probably do the same thing to him. And so, you know, Republicans and their base have an extraordinary ability to kind of whip themselves up into a frenzy in terms of hating, uh, you know, the other side and, and making a caricature out of somebody and uh, directing a lot of hate towards them. I think it becomes easier with AOC because for a lot of the Republican base, she represents the other in a lot of different ways for the reasons that we just talked about. Um, but that said, you know, um, how then do we kind of bridge that divide? Um, I, I think sometimes we have to understand that we're not everybody's cup of tea and that we might not necessarily be the, mes the best messenger um, and try and identify messengers uh, in those communities uh, that can speak to their neighbors and say, hey, look, you know, I am in my context because I'm a democratic socialist, right? We have folks like Dylan Parker out in Rock Island who's a democratic socialist. He's a member of the DSA. Uh, you know, he's a union member. He's a he's a trade unionist. Uh, he's a he's a working class guy. 
uh, and he's a city council member, Rock Island, right? And so I think that he has the ability to perhaps reach out to people in Western Illinois in a way that I can't. Um, or a way that AOC can. Similarly, we have Lee Carter, another member of the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, former Marine, uh, you know, working class guy, uh, defeated uh, the Speaker of the Virginia House uh, and has since been reelected as an open socialist. Uh, I think, you know, that's someone who can go and speak to, you know, rural white people in Virginia and talk to them about a progressive vision that they have in common uh, with, uh, you know, urban uh, cities and and urban democratic socialists. So I I think it's about, and again, I'm repeating a lot of cliches here, but it kind of is really about meeting people where they're at. Um, And again, I I do think that identity politics and identity has a big role uh, in American politics, right? We are just so segregated as a country um, I'm kind of looking back at history and thinking about the original Rainbow Coalition, right? We had the Black Panther Party. Uh, we had uh, Jose Chacha Jimenez and the Young Lords Party. But we also had another critical element of that Rainbow Coalition, which was the Young Patriots, right, which worked to organize. They were Appalachian, uh, you know, whites uh, who had moved to the city, and they were working to, to organize other working class rural whites that had moved to the city. So, um, you know, we got to understand that, um, that we're a very diverse country. Uh, and that our coalition uh, should be diverse. Um, those are kind of just some of the first initial thoughts that I've had because kind of looking at the initial election results that have come in, I do think that there's a major urban-rural divide. And we as progressives have got to figure out how to bridge that. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm not saying, you know, hide me, you know, as, as a gay Latino from the city, hide me. No, let's be honest. And let's, and let's, let's talk about you know, the alliances that we're making with, you know, rural progressive white people uh, and, and the shared vision that we have uh, on things that are extremely popular, like decriminalizing, uh, you know, drugs, uh, supporting living wages, supporting good jobs, uh, you know, taking on corporate power uh, and taking on, uh, you know, the outsourcing of American jobs. I think that there's a lot of room to build a progressive coalition uh, that has electoral successes, uh, both in uh, American cities and in the countryside. All right, let's take a look at the last time that that happened in our lifetime. Uh, 2008, Barack Obama. And when you were talking, I was thinking about Barack Obama winning Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barack Obama won North Carolina, won Florida, won Ohio. I'm trying to think, did he win Missouri? It was neck and neck. I can't recall if he actually won Missouri. But the point is, uh, it was a sweeping victory across the board. And it was uh, a black man from Chicago. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, you know, and now we have Donald Trump who just uses Chicago and uses black people in Chicago, of course, uh, as um, as his dog whistles to get everybody to fall in line. But here we had a black man from Chicago who went out and won, uh, won over the support of uh, white voters in these states that are, are have been red ever since. Do you see any lessons from 2008 that are applicable to, to today? Yeah. Well, my understanding, again, and that's what I'm saying, let's let's let the dust settle and then let's dig into the data. But from what I've read thus far, it appears that if the same electorate that had showed up in 2008 uh, was the electorate that showed up in 2020, that Biden would have won in a landslide. I've read that now in several different articles that are kind of looking at the election results. Um, and my understanding is, is that the electorate expanded and that the rural electorate that expanded went overwhelmingly for Donald Trump. Um, And so, um, 
I mean, yeah, it, it could just be that Donald Trump and Barack Obama are kind of just those outliers, you know, uh, that once in a generation candidate that comes along for their party that is able to tap into new voters and create excitement and bring people out to the polls that normally wouldn't. Um, but you have a very good point there, right? Barack Obama, you know, uh, uh, they called him a socialist, right? And I think we've mm-hmm. talked about that in the past where, you know, Republicans are going to call whoever's at the top of the Democratic ticket a socialist, uh, despite, in the case of Biden, receiving more money from Wall Street. At <laughs> um, that's the socialist, you know, the guy yeah. well-funded by big companies. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think that's a good point. And, and I think to your point, that's why I'm just like, yeah, what's there's something going on there, right? How is it that AOC, you know, the, the woman from New York, uh, the Latina from New York can be a boogeyman uh, and, and seemingly, quote unquote, turn off rural voters. But at the same time, you know, we have a black man from Chicago that, that's winning places like Iowa. Um, that's why we got to dig into the data and, and kind of figure out what's what, what happened in 2008 versus what happened in 2020. Well, um, yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say one thing that in 2008 just pops to my mind, and uh, you know this because you were a young high school kid back then, but uh, you were following this. Barack Obama presented himself as an anti-war candidate. And just think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trump, Trump, did you see uh, Lil Pump? Which, by the way, there's all these like older Republicans being like, I didn't know who Lil Pump was. You know, <laughs> big endorsement. And I'm the, I'm the same way. I'm like, I don't know who Lil Pump was, you know? I literally did not find out who he was until he endorsed, uh, you know, Donald Trump. But uh, they asked him because I was on Donald Trump's YouTube page because, you know, you got to see what your enemy is up to. So I'm poking around his YouTube page and and he has a a video of Lil Pump and Lil Pump is like Donald Trump brought the troops home. And that was like basically the top line message that he gave as to why he was supporting uh, Trump's reelection. so yeah, I just I know I just kind of interjected there, but I just yeah no it's a it's that a, Obama like that yeah. Trump like Obama was an anti-war candidate so to speak a bring the troops home candidate yeah no I think that there's a lot to be said and I can't believe these words are about to come out of my mouth um, but the uh, anti-establishment rhetoric of Trump there was a kernel of stuff that like resonated with me Carlos because the, some of the members of the deep state were the people who got us into that war in the first place. And uh, now they're against Trump and they don't have any credibility with me. And I'm, I know I'm a lefty voter. I know that. I understand that. I'm not part of the mainstream, but I've always felt that uh, one of the, uh, the lessons to take away from the, uh, the wars that were waged of this entire century is a tremendous reservoir of cynicism on the part of many people in this country that you can't believe what your government tells you that they make up stories to try to uh, take advantage of your patriotism and get you to support wars that you wouldn't ordinarily support, or even get you to sign up and go fight wars that you wouldn't support. I think Donald Trump managed to position himself as a champion of that feeling against definitely against Hillary Clinton, who supported all those wars and even against Biden. Mm-hmm. So that I think uh, is something that Democrats might want to reflect on as well. I don't know if they ever will. What's your thoughts? Well, you you reminded me that some years ago there was a lot of back and forth amongst my friends in the progressive left and in the American socialist movement, talking about you know Bernie would have won because he would have been able to appeal to these disaffected rural white voters. 
right, who have been hurt by globalization, uh, who have been hurt by the outsourcing of jobs. And then kind of like the liberal retort was, you're racist, you're discounting racism. These people are just a basket of deplorables. They're racist and they voted for Trump uh, because of white supremacy. And so I kind of went digging around and said, well, let's find some like peer reviewed research that kind of looks at the election data. And I found this study and I, I got to find it again. But what it what it said was it was it was on JSTOR. So it was an academic article. And what it said was that they looked at Obama to Trump crossover voters and there were millions of them. And arguably, those Obama to Trump crossover voters um, won the election for Trump in 2012 because they made the difference in so many of those swing states that Hillary thought she was going to win that ended up going to Trump at that point in time. And what they found was that racial animus uh, was not they didn't report high levels of racial animus, which makes sense, right? Because if you're a white person that voted for uh, the first black president of the United States in 2008 and 2012, you're probably not motivated by racism by then choosing Donald Trump in uh, 2020. I think what that study, if I remember correctly, found was that it was actually kind of economic angst and your feeling about your place in the global economy that was the biggest indicator that you would be an Obama to Trump crossover voter. Uh, that you voted for Obama in 2012 and then 2016 you went on to vote for Donald Trump. So I really want to find that study again. But th- but that's the kind of good research that really helps us understand kind of what's motivating people and that can really help us build a strong, robust, progressive movement. I absolutely think that you know Donald Trump did tap into a, a sentiment in the United States when he explicitly called out the quote-unquote globalists, right, when he called out the outsourcing of jobs. Um, and, and I've had some conversations with some of my, you know, quote unquote, corporate Democrat friends and said, hey, you know, that's really where we need to be moving as as a party. We need to be more populist, so to speak, in our economic policy. And what they tell me is like, yes, but if we do that, then we'll piss off the corporations that fund the Democratic Party. And so it's somewhat of a prisoner's dilemma. Right. It's like, you know, you, you have to be able to to go out there and and communicate your message. And in order to communicate your message, you need money. Um, but at the same time, uh, you know, the, the message that you want to be able to communicate uh, that would actually be a winning message might, you know, cut you off from some of those sources of funding. So it, it truly is a, a horrible situation to be in. I personally feel that, you know, Bernie showed that there's a different way to fund your campaign. Uh, and that is through grassroots support and grassroots money. Um, actually, um, you know, it, it, to me, it's just, um, well, I don't know, I'm just kind of going off on a tangent now, but uh, your comments about, you know, kind of hearing Trump speak and at times kind of saying, hey, that kind of resonates that anti-establishment or that anti-swamp or, you know, that quote unquote anti-globalist message kind of resonates with some people on the left or some people in the, in the United States that are just kind of disaffected. All right. Let me just say one thing before I move on to the transition. The anti-swamp rhetoric never resonated with me because I know from having written about Chicago development deals, what a swamp (laughs) Donald Trump has lived in his whole life. That freaking Trump Tower, that hideous thing that sits on the Chicago River with his big name plastered on it is there by virtue of the connections that he made with the biggest Democratic machine hacks in the city of Chicago, Carl. 
Carlos. Don't get me started about Donald Swamp. Donald Trump living in a swamp, but I hear you. I hear oh, you. Oh yeah, and he's and he's a total fraud and and yeah, it still baffles me. I try and understand the Trump voter and how they could, you know, fall for, you know, the the okie doke. Uh, but uh, it just doesn't make any sense for me whatsoever. No. Well, I think uh, a lot of it is um, you love who you love the man uh, for whom he hates. And there's so much animosity that exists in our country right now. There's such a divide. Uh, and, you know, I just think mask versus maskless. You know what I mean? Like we shouldn't oh, have no. to wear masks versus Please wear a mask. And that divide right there, Carlos, it's like, I don't even know how to deal it's with that. Deep. It's deep. You know, earlier on in the in the pandemic, in around June, I went to uh, to hike Devil's Lake, which is right outside of the Wisconsin Dells. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we go to dinner and we want to sit on an outdoor patio because it's safer to eat outdoors. Um, and we walk into the restaurant with our masks on to be asked to be seated outdoors. We're the only people in this restaurant in Wisconsin Dells with masks on. And literally people are just staring at us and shaking their heads. Like, like if they're just, they were so astounded and disgusted yeah. <laughs> that us, us big city slickers would walk into their bar uh, and all have masks on. They couldn't believe it. Yeah, no, it's like a, a person walking into a Starbucks, let's say, in your ward wearing a MAGA hat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a thought. We, we uh, drink Starbucks. We, we do intelligentsia, okay? We're just a little bit. Okay, sorry, man. <laughs> we're, we're step above. No, thank you. All right. Uh, this is a good point as uh, ever to, to like transition a little bit to local uh, issues, uh, because you talked about a populist agenda that the Democrats could articulate that would win over um, voters in Trump country. And man, did they have one in this last election? It was called the fair tax and it bombed. And I could go on and on and on on that issue. But I'd love to hear you, your thoughts uh, Monday morning quarterbacking, if you will. What in the world did the Democrats do wrong with the fair tax and how could they have done it right? Yeah. Well, one, I think the campaign started entirely too late. Two, I would have never called it a fair tax because in this country, being a populist is opposing taxes. Right. And particularly in the city of Chicago and all across the state of Illinois, where people feel nickel and dimed and feel the impacts of regressive taxation. Uh, we saw it with the soda tax. Right. It was hated. It was despised. And so I I think one, it should have been called the middle class tax cut amendment. And it should have been framed in such a way that was populist, that tapped into people's anger around the fact that the rich are not paying their fair share in taxes, while middle working class families continuously have to bear that burden. Um, The initial messaging was just like, oh, yes, for fairness. It's like, What's fairness? And then they would talk about first responders and, uh, you know, the the uh, nurses that were paying the same tax rate. Honestly, what I would have done is I would have said, this is the middle class tax cut amendment. You are paying the same tax rate as Ken Griffin, and you have this one little tiny house that's being tax to health and property taxes. And meanwhile, here's the interior and here's the exterior of every single one of Ken Griffin's houses. Right. And so make this guy pay his fair share, vote for the middle class tax cut amendment. It's time for you to lower your taxes and for him to pay more. Um, and, and I don't think we saw that kind of antagonistic 
class message in the fair tax yes campaign um but we definitely did see that like anti-government i'm fed up with you know springfield populist sentiment in the no campaign uh and look the only silver lining here is we made ken griffin spend tens of millions <laughs> of his ill-gotten you know riches uh obviously it must have been a lot less than what he expected to pay if the tax had gone through for him to you know decide to sink that amount of money um, but, um, but yeah, I, I was not impressed with the yes campaign, even the yard signs, which is like, come on. I, I, I think they spent more on yard signs than, than mail. Uh, the mail was bad. The signs were bad. I'm really proud of our local effort in the 35th ward. Uh, it got close to 80%, which is above the state and citywide average. Uh, and I think it's because we printed very simple literature that said the fair tax amendment will lower taxes on middle and working class families while asking the rich to pay their fair share by increasing uh, the tax rate on millionaires and billionaires. And we went door to door to about 2,500 uh, drop off voters. So these are folks that vote every presidential race, but don't vote in the midterm. And so we looked at who had not yet early voted and we just went to their door and had a conversation with them. And I credit that with, uh, you know, the fair tax performing as well as it did in the 35th Ward. Obviously, yes, you know, we're big city slickers and we have a lot of very progressive people in our district. But, um, you know, we outperformed other similarly progressive districts. And I think it was because of just talking to people about what this fair tax really was and what it would have accomplished. I had people that showed up on Election Day who I spoke with who voted against the fair tax and they were approaching it from a very populist you know, quote unquote, progressive standpoint, which was just like, no more taxing the little guy. And so they, wow. they were duped. They, they were totally uh, misinformed uh, by Ken Griffin's commercials. Yeah, no, it was very pow- powerful propaganda uh, that Kenny G put out, and I, I, you know, I, uh, I'm a good sport. I, I lost, and Kenny G won on that one. And the 50 million that he spent, trust me, uh, was an investment, uh, Carlos, and not spending more on government, uh, yeah. and perhaps mm-hmm. destroying government in the uh, process. Mm-hmm. So, all right, now lock the other issue. Up. What's that? I said, lock him up. Lock him up. Okay. Uh, no, we're not like Donald Trump. We're different than Donald Trump. Um, the other issue, of course, is Michael Madigan in this. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this. We talk a lot about Michael Joseph Madigan on our show, uh, the impact that he has in Illinois right now, uh, the fact that so many voters downstate, all you have to do is link Madigan to fill in the blank. Yeah. Pretty soon they're going to be linking Madigan to you, even though you have never supported. Oh, he's never supported you. You've never, you know what I'm saying? Uh, so talk about the Madigan impact in Illinois. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's no doubt that he is at the center of a wide ranging uh, federal investigation. And um, he cannot provide the strong leadership that Democrats need, whether that be uh, passing needed legislation in Springfield as we deal with the impacts of this virus, or as we just saw, uh, delivering the electoral victories uh, that we need in the state uh, in his role as chair of the Democratic Party. So back in August, uh, I actually joined with our 35th Ward Democratic Committeeman, Anthony Casada in issuing a statement uh, calling for uh, Speaker Madigan to step aside uh, for the good of the party and for the good of the state of Illinois. Um, you know, this is not too different. Uh, there was another uh, House leader, Lou Lang, uh, from Niles, Illinois, 
who's since retired. He uh, was falsely accused of sexual harassment and misconduct. Uh, and he stepped aside from his leadership role in uh, the uh, in the House, in the state legislature, until that investigation was concluded. So, you know, obviously we have uh, our basic fundamental constitutional rights. Speaker Madigan has not been uh, indicted. Uh, even if he were, he would be innocent until proven guilty. But at the same time, particularly in this moment, we need strong leadership. And so there's no doubt that you know Madigan is bringing down the party, is hampering the ability of the Democrats in the House to pursue a bold agenda that our working families need at this time. I'm going to say the same thing that I said in August. It's time for him to step aside. All right. I'll, um, yeah, I either that. I always say this on the show. Either that or change your persona. And stop being the uh, Wizard of Oz behind the closed door who only issues like these like confusing statements, you know, from time to be just stand up either. The, you know, the behind... I've never met the man before. What's that? I had never met the man before. And I show up to the 2016 Democratic National Convention. I'm on the convention floor. And, you know, of course, you're sitting with the Illinois delegation. And so um, I end up right next to him, and I turn to him to, to shake my hand, and I say, oh, hello, speaker. And he goes, oh, yes, Carlos Rosa. And I just froze up because I was like, how do you know my name? You know, like, you should not know who I am. I'm a lowly alderman, one of 50 in the city of Chicago. Um, and so, I mean, he's an old school operator, and, and there's no doubt that, you know, he's very wise about wielding power in certain ways. Um, but... But it's just, it's it's time for him to go. There's no doubt that, you know, he's a, uh, you know, um, that he's hurting the Democratic Party in this moment. All right, let's, uh, let's close uh, the interview with something uh, a little more positive. And about the only thing I could think of positive right off the top of my head is Kim Fox was uh, reelected. Hey. Yeah, and uh, it up against really hey, one wait, of the wait, most. Wait. Joe Biden. Joe, oh, on the local level, yeah, Joey B. Uh, well, it's, I hesitate to count uh, my chickens before they hatch. Hold on, I'm looking. I'm gonna do. Let's see if we have breaking news while we're on the. Uh, the New York Times. What a joke! I mean, they won't give Arizona. This is a pet peeve of mine, Carlos. I obsessively follow these things. So AP and Fox have called Arizona for um, Biden. Biden. And uh, the New York Times, nope, not going to do it yet. <laughs> Come on, guys, get out there. You know, I'm looking at this map, uh, Carlos, and this just accentuates everything you said. I'm looking at the map. The New York Times has it on its homepage. And so blue, of course, is Biden and red uh, uh, is Trump. And on the coasts, it's all blue. And in the middle, it's, with the exception of Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin, it's yeah, all red. <laughs> Well, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, that's the third coast. So all the coasts went for, uh, with the exception of the Gulf Coast, but I don't know what's going on down there. Yeah, that's a good point. That's another uh, great lake coast. coast. I mean, around the edges of Lake Michigan, I think there's 30 million people. There's a lot of people uh, that that live around Lake Michigan, uh, if you count them all up. And uh, I think think we're a pretty progressive bunch. By the way, can I get you to sign on to my uh, suggestion to, for once and for all, 
uh, take back the Senate from the Republicans and permanently become uh, a Democrat. And for once and for all, since nobody has the will to get rid of the Electoral College to control it, get people from California to move to Texas. We could. It's we'll over. Move to Texas movement. Yes. <laughs> there you go. I want you to champion that. You know, I mean, what, there's no difference between San Francisco and Austin. You know, go ahead, move there. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's one way of, of doing it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to tell people to move to Texas. You know. Oh well, I, I, I will. <laughs> and by the way, you can move to Florida too while you're at it. That take care of Florida. There you go. Um, all right. So let's talk about uh, Kim Fox. A little a bright spot. Yes. In addition to what seems to be a certain uh, Joe Biden victory, uh, touch wood, fingers crossed. Unless, of course, a Supreme Court in its infinite idiocy concocts some way to give it to Trump. All right, moving and putting that aside. Um, Kim Fox, talk about that. Um, Well, you know, uh, I'm just so proud of our progressive state's attorney. Um, She has faced an uphill climb to institute even the most basic reforms. I have a lot of progressive friends uh, and a lot of uh, national and local experts in criminal justice reform who say she's not gone far enough. And I agree with that. I think there's a lot more that she can and should do. Uh, But at the same time, she has been a progressive state's attorney uh, and has implemented common sense criminal justice reforms. Um, And because of that, she's faced a lot of vitriol because she's a woman and because she's black. She's faced a lot of vitriol from the usual suspects. Uh, Crime has gone down under her watch. Uh, the lock everybody up and let's be racist with our policing and our criminal justice system is an approach that does not work. It just destroys lives. Um, so she's going against the conventional wisdom, which is wrong, uh, by pushing things like getting rid of uh, cash bond and and po- moving on these reforms. And despite you know the media covering the Jesse Smollett scandal ad infinitum i mean it's really who is still watching this i don't understand who is still interested in this story uh despite that uh despite facing a uh very well funded uh primary challenger who had no business running he simply i think he just thought he had an opportunity because of all the coverage from jesse smollett and was being an opportunist and had daddy's money to help him be that opportunist despite that which i'm sure hurt her in the general Despite all that, and despite also facing an opponent that was funded uh, and supported by the FOP and by Ken Griffin, um, she won. And, um, you know, to me, it just shows that, you know, Cook County and the city of Chicago, we are progressive. Uh, And it's just so good to see, uh, you know, a a clear majority uh, support good public policy as it relates to, you know, uh, the reforms pursued by our state's attorney. All right. That's as good a place as ever to leave it. Carlos, next time you come on, I'm sure we'll be talking uh, more local issues, yeah. budgets, uh, well, what to you know do. What we got to talk about. We got to talk about when Biden is in office, how we got to push forward the Biden Bernie manifesto, as Donald Trump called it. There was a lot of good stuff uh, in, uh, you know, the, the policy paper that was issued by Biden and Bernie. And I think it's, it's time now for Joe Biden to speak. I'm with you 100 percent. And one thing I hope uh, that people of the liberal or left persuasion do not do is what they did in 2009. Uh, having with in the aftermath of Barack Obama's election, they went to sleep. 
Yep. And uh, they slept throughout most of Barack Obama's uh, tenure in office and only woke up in 2016 on Election Day when they discovered that while they were sleeping, the Republicans were organizing. And yep. uh, so, yes, absolutely. Um, if Joe Biden uh, is allowed to take office, even with, you know, if the Supreme Court lets him, uh, yes, it's very they important. I mean, I'm, I'm scared because the Trump campaign at this moment right now, they are doubling down on the most wild, crazy rhetoric. So I'm scared because Trump is, is playing a very dangerous game. But I just we cannot allow Trump to steal this election. Once every vote is counted, it is so clear uh, that Biden has won not just only the popular vote, but the Electoral College yeah. vote. We got to take to the streets and defend democracy. Uh, and I mean, we can't let the Supreme Court or the Trump campaign or any Republican legislature overrule the democratic will of the people. Uh, I'm with you 100 percent there. And I mean, and I think it will be by the time people hear this show, which it drops on Monday, I believe uh, Joe Biden will declare the victor. So, all right, Carlos, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. As, appreciate it as always. All right. Yep. All right. You have a great uh, weekend. Bye. That's Carlos Ramirez Rosa. I'm Ben Drofsky. Take care, everybody. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.